apparently, back on the 30th of January, there was an editorial or a story that appeared in the West Australian here in Perth, and it was around the time when the Liberal Party were changing leaders, and if you've been following the news, you know that there's been a lot of discussion about uh, the uh, Christian influence or the influence of the Christian right into the Liberal Party, and so there's been all of this discussion. And the story of the editorial, can't remember what it was, went on to talk about, basically, it described Christians as God-botherers and happy-clappies, and they should keep their noses out and all this kind of stuff. So, that's one thing, God-botherers, happy-clappies. And in some Christian circles, I want to be really careful here because I want you to know that I'm not actually criticising, but in some Christian circles, it's been described as, well, that's repugnant. In this day and age when we're supposed to be inclusive, why do we single out Christians and and use abusive and derogatory terms like God-botherers and... Um, happy clappies and stuff like that and so I understand the sentiment because what they're, they're trying to point out the inconsistency in our culture but I've got to be really honest if God botherer is the worst you can come up with go your hardest you know what I mean you want to call me a happy clappy Baptists generally aren't called happy clappies Got a laugh from this side. (laughs) Like, go your hardest. So it was funny because this was uh, all happening. Uh, I'm thinking this through. And I was just going through some some old uh, stuff at home. Because I've actually been called worse. I I came across two letters that I'd kept. One was sent to me years ago when I was in Cairns. And... It goes, it goes as two, Robert Furlong, left off the G. I needed to write to you after having the misfortune to meet you at the Baptist church. <laughs> That's the opening line. After having had the misfortune to meet you at the Baptist church. Uh, then he goes on. It's just really interesting, I've kept this. I, and I've kept it because it's so well written. It's, just, it's like watching a train wreck. Um, I want to find the next bit. Just bear with me, okay? Because, look, I hope you can have uh, a laugh with me about it. But he went on and he said, um, he talked to me, he said, to call you a Christian is a lie. You are mean, nasty, selfish, shut off, indirect, cowardly, blasphemous, greedy, hypocritical, unfair, ineffectual, immature and childish. You have not grown emotionally over the age of five years. Oh, he's a ripper, eh? It's a ripper. In action, you are a total and abject failure as a man, father and husband, who lives off his families and congregation spirits like a parasite and bludger. You mislead and confuse hundreds of people every week, and you are a fool if you think that you are any part of Christ's salvation. You, in fact, would not know Jesus Christ if you fell over him in the street. That was one. Call me a God-botherer. Go for it. 20 years ago, I came across this one. I'm not not going to boy with all of this stuff, okay? But I I don't mind if you have a laugh at my expense. It was Easter time and I wrote... I I was just a bit concerned with some of the airy-fairy stuff that goes on at Easter in the paper, so I I thought, I'll have a shot. So I rang up the West Australian and said, look, I'd like to 
submit an article, if you're prepared to publish it, about the resurrection, uh, and just actually to come from the perspective of someone who actually believes it was a living, living physical resurrection of Jesus. And they published it, which was amazing in itself. And I received this letter at the church that I was at at the time. And the guy had rung me up. And so he'd sent this letter to the West, which I, I don't think they published. But he sent it to me anyway after the phone call because he wanted me to know how he really felt. Uh, this is how this letter starts. Obviously having nothing better to do for the moment, I recently took the trouble to phone a Reverend Rob Furlong. <laughs> nothing better to do. Uh, he said, uh, Reverend Rob Furlong's last bottom line in the article was, this Easter I declare to you my unashamed belief in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm utterly convinced of it and the living Jesus still changes lives today. And he said, so I asked Furlong the obvious question. Could he still... Or could he give me the living Jesus' telephone number so that I could speak to him? Rob Furlong had absolutely not the slightest comprehension of this manifestly simple question. You know what his answer was? It was, I can give you a direct line. I do remember saying that. <laughs> Prayer, direct line. Muttering to yourself imbecilically is a direct line. What is it about such people that makes me feel obliged to so pleasantly insult one's intelligence like this? You see, religion is wholly, utterly dependent upon irrational superstition. This is the, you'll love this. The Rob Furlongs have not the slightest capacities to honestly comprehend any of this at all. Their uniquely big brains are lobotomized by their manic need for some sort of any sort will do fantastic fairy tale. Rob not only advocated that I imbecilically and incontinently dribble to myself as a direct line, he was so utterly impervious, impervious to my conversation with him and the elementary logic of my question that he invited me to attend his church any time. I remember doing that too. It is impossible to penetrate this sort of absolute intellectual schizophrenia. I am utterly convinced the living Jesus still changes lives today. There is no way, kind way of escaping at all whatsoever this happily confessed insanity. So when I read something that says they're calling us God-botherers or happy clappies, I'm going your hardest. Because, and here's, here's the point of what I want to say, and it's related to our passage. You'll be relieved to know that. I'm reminded, when I read this and contemplated, and as I said, there's no criticism at all of, of people who think differently, but I was reminded of what Jesus said. Jesus said, it is enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher and the slave as his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more are the members of his household? So if they're going to call us God-botherers or happy-clappies or whatever terminology they want to use, folks, we ought not be surprised. And let's not, I want to be careful with this, but let's not play the victim card. Because what did you expect when you signed up to follow Jesus? So I say, the message this morning, which is called Sanctified Citizens, I've changed the title. It's now officially known as God Botherers. All right? Let's have a look at 2 Peter, chapter 1, and look at what it means to be a God Botherer. Because this is where I want to take it, and I hope you see the link. What Peter has done, if you remember last week, there were three essential things that came out from the text last week, the first four verses. Peter said very clearly that... In Christ, we have everything we need to live the Christian life. He then went on and he said, you bear the family likeness, you've become partakers of the divine nature. And then thirdly, he said, you have turned your backs on the world. You have escaped the corruption that is in the world. You've turned your back on the world. In the light of that, 
Because of those essential truths, look at verse 5. In light of that, Peter says, this is how you now live. This is what it means to be a Christian. And it's on the topic of sanctification. And so the first thing I want to say to you this morning is that sanctification requires our cooperation. Have a look closely at verse 5. Notice what Peter says. For this very reason, okay, on the basis of what I've just said, says Peter, applying all diligence in your faith. Now, it's a really strong term. The idea of application here means to come alongside, to do your part. And the diligence is referring to an earnestness or to a zealousness. It's the idea of being quick to do something. So do you see what Peter is saying? He's saying, in view of all of this, this is what God has done for you in Jesus. Given you everything you need to live the Christian life. Given you the family likeness. You've turned your back on the world. You have escaped the corruption of the world. And in view of that, in all that he has done, now you draw alongside Jesus and you be zealous and do your part. What's he saying? He's talking about sanctification. And he's talking about the fact that sanctification requires our cooperation. Sanctification is another word for holiness. If we are going to be holy people, if we are going to live differently to the world around about us, if we are going to be God-botherers by the kind of lives that we live, and I want to emphasise the life that we live, not so much what we talk about this morning, but if we truly are going to be God-botherers, if we're going to produce or see that kind of life coming out in us, the kind of life that reflects Jesus, we have to do our part. You will not become holy just by sitting on your backside in church and attending once a week. That will not bring holiness. It will help. But if you don't draw alongside Jesus, if you don't cooperate with Jesus, you will never become a holy person. Important truth. Notice what he says. He goes on and he talks about the kind of qualities that holy people demonstrate. But look at what he says. He says, applying all diligence in your faith, supply. Now, this is really interesting. Again, it's talking about our part. In the ancient world, in the days in which Peter lived, when the church was birthed, if you were a playwright, you've come up with this brilliant idea for a play and you've written out the play, you've got the script and you've got the actors in mind and you want that play, you're really keen about this, you think this will be a great play, you want people to see it. But all you could do was get to the point of writing the script. Here's the script, this is how it goes, this is what the actors do, da-da-da. But you needed something. What you needed was what they called the choragos. And so in order to put that play on, in order to produce that play, in order for that play for, to be seen by people, you had to find the choragos. The choragos was a rich benefactor who would supply everything you need. You would go to the rich person and rich people would compete for this opportunity. So if you got this play and you pitched it to a group of rich people, they would actually vie for the opportunity to put the play on, to become the choragos. And they would supply everything you need. They would supply the money. Whatever it was, whatever it cost to get that play produced, the Karagos would provide it. It was costly. It was generous. But the play would go ahead. The show would go on. And that is the word. Now, this is amazing. That's the word that Peter uses here. He says, in your faith, in cooperating with Jesus, what you supply is to be costly and generous. Incredible, isn't it? 
You see, sanctification requires our cooperation. In this instance, we draw alongside Jesus and it's costly, but we're generous in order to see that God's plan for our lives will be fulfilled. Now, I'm not talking about legalism, I'm talking about works. I'm talking about cooperation. God's will, very clearly here in the scripture, elsewhere in the New Testament, God's will is that we be holy people, sanctified people. As I said before, he has given us everything we need to live the Christian life. He's provided the Holy Spirit. He's provided the Word of God. He's provided other Christians. He's provided the church. He has given us everything we need. It's all there at our disposal. But folks, you are not going to be holy if you don't access that, if you don't cooperate, if you don't draw alongside. Is this making sense to you? It's all there. But if you like, the show will not go on without your cooperation. You want to live a holy life? You need to cooperate with God and what he's done generously, fully, completely, costly. This, I'm sure, is challenging the thinking of some of you this morning. I'm going to say it again. You will never become a holy person unless you commit to diligently, carefully, working with God and supplying the cooperation in the process. It reminds me of the story of a guy who was caught in a flood and he was sitting on the roof of his house and along came a neighbour in his rowboat and he said, would you like me to row you to safety? He said, no, no, he said, God's going to save me. It's all good. And the neighbour said, okay, rowed on. About... Half an hour later, the floodwaters had crept up. He's still on the roof, but it's crept up to his knees. And along came the Coast Guard, and they said, would you like us to take you to safety? He said, no, 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 God's got it all under control. He's going to save me. Okay, moved on. Finally, the water was up to his neck. Along comes a helicopter buzzing over, and they shout down through the microphone, would you like help? We can take you to safety, winch you up now, get you out of here. He said, no, 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 God is going to save me. Another half hour goes by and now the water's over his head and he's struggling and he cries out, God, help me. You said you were going to save me and God said, I sent your neighbour, I sent the Coast Guard and I sent a helicopter. What more could I have supplied for you to do it, to rescue you? We're like that as Christians. God, save me, make me a holy person, but let's do it quickly. How many times have you heard people, I can remember a, a good friend of mine years and years ago, struggling in the Christian life, uh, was talking to Karen at the time and she said, I just wish that I could go to church and get a quick zappo from the Holy Spirit and then everything would be fine. That is not the process of growth. God is not into quick zappos. God is not into instant holiness. You were sanctified, you were set apart for Jesus at the moment of conversion. That is the truth of scripture. You are completely and wholly separated to God, but now the process of sanctification is ongoing for the rest of your life and it requires your cooperation. If you don't acknowledge that, if you don't recognise that in order to change, you must first recognise there is a need to change. You will never grow. Personal illustration. I remember my mum who battled alcoholism all her life. And after my dad died, she was going through another bad bout and we got her to agree 
to go into rehabilitation and that was a good thing. But when she came out, we knew that it had failed because she said, I'm not like those people in there. You see the blind spot? Until we recognise there is an area that needs to change. I've got to recognise the change and then commit to it. You'll never change. But here's the thing. I'm talking a lot about cooperation. I'm not talking about working harder for Jesus. I'm not talking about trying harder to be a better Christian. I'm talking about cooperating. And I love this illustration. I've shared it here before. I'm sharing it again. It's the illustration of Shakespeare. If I said to you, look, you like writing sonnets, you like writing plays, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and write a play that's every bit as good as Shakespeare. You're going to say, it's impossible, I'm not Shakespeare. How could I write a play as good as Shakespeare? Well, you can't. You're trying to copy it. You're trying to be something that you're not. But what if the spirit of Shakespeare could live inside you? You think you could do it? Yeah. You see the parallel to the Christian life? It's no good me saying to you, here's the life of Jesus, now copy it. You will never, ever be able to copy the life of Jesus. But... If the spirit of Jesus lives in you, do you think you've got a chance of being like Jesus? You know the answer. Of course you do. It's about cooperating with who and what God has done in us. So here's some straight talk. If you're battling with change, if you're saying, oh, I want to be a holy person, I'm not a holy person, wake up to yourself. That's in the book of things you'd like to say to people pastorally, but you don't. You say something like, I'll pray for you. Wake up to yourself. You will not grow to be like Jesus if you just continually deny that there is an issue or if you're just looking for a zappo from the Holy Spirit or if you're just saying to yourself it's too hard. Yes, the Christian life is difficult, but we have not been left alone. We've been given the Spirit of God. We've been given the Bible. We've been given other Christians to encourage us on. Let's cooperate with what God has done in us. So what is the goal of sanctification? Look at verse 5 again. The goal of sanctification is love. What's this all about? Is it about being a holy person? Well, yes, holiness is important. But it's deeper than that. Becoming like Jesus, becoming a holy person is all about love. And I've said this before as well. And look where Peter takes it. Look at the qualities that produce love. Because you might see on the overhead here, I'm quoting here, make every effort to add to your faith. That's another way of translating that word supply. And the interesting thing is, uh, is that it's that, again, stressing that translation that we've got to cooperate with God. And so what Peter does is he talks about the desirable qualities of holiness or sanctification. He talks about the first one. Uh, I've called it here virtue. My Bible translates it as moral excellence. Do you know what that is? Moral excellence is just this. There's something in a person that you see and you admire. There's a quality about them that you say, wow, I really admire that person because of that quality. A story that comes to mind is of Haddon Robinson, a great preacher who probably in his 50s and 60s, I was listening to him preach and he was talking about honesty. And he told the story of his dad who was just a single dad, raised Haddon Robinson on his own, single dad living in New York. 
uh, just a humble Christian man and he said, I was about 15 or 16 walking with my dad to the subway in New York and he said, I was a Christian and he said, we're about to go through the turnstile and he said, I did what, or he said, I tried to do what everybody else did in those days and that was just to slide under the turnstile so I wouldn't have to pay the fare to get on the train. And he said, I was halfway through the slide and he said, I felt my dad's hand on my shoulder. He said, we don't do that. That's all he said. But here he was in his 50s and 60s saying, I never forgot it. He said, that humble Christian man who never set the world on fire. But he said, there was a characteristic in him that I admired. That's moral excellence. You see something in someone and you admire it. Peter says, produce that. See that grow in you. Uh, The next one I've referred to as practical wisdom. The word is knowledge in the translation. Now, this knowledge is talking about a knowledge of God, but it also refers to a knowledge of truth. And here's the interesting thing. This practical wisdom, this knowledge of truth, this knowledge of truth is able to tell you what is good and what is bad. Now, that's helpful. But the word also has built into it. Not only does it tell you what is good and what is bad, it actually tells you how to avoid the bad. Now, that's good advice, isn't it? So it doesn't just point out that this is evil or bad or wrong, but it actually says here's how to avoid it. Folks, read the book of Proverbs. It is filled with practical wisdom. It is filled with knowledge on how we can live. That wonderful, wonderful book. I love the Hebrew approach to wisdom. The Greeks would philosophize. The Greeks would talk about wisdom and it was some airy-fairy speculative thing that really had nothing to do with life. But the Hebrews said, no, wisdom is grounded in reality. And wisdom is knowing what is good and what is wrong and how God views it. But wisdom is also knowing how to avoid that and how to do the good. It was practical. So if you have a problem with a neighbour or this problem in your marriage, read the book of Proverbs. We've got it all the way through the New Testament as well. But read the book of Proverbs. Here's how you go about it. Practical wisdom. Peter says, build that into your life. Don't just know what is right or wrong, but know how to avoid the wrong. He then talks about practical living or self-control. I smile because my eldest granddaughter said to me once, you have no self-control. She was 10 at the time. This self-control, this practical living, it's closely related to practical wisdom because self-control has the idea of strength. And when we yield to the Spirit's control in our life, we are strong. We have self-control. So here's the bad news. The bad news is you will never be free of sinful desires. You will never be free of sinful desires, whatever it is. But here is the good news. You don't have to give in to them. When that sinful desire comes along, how, how do we cooperate with God? When that, whatever it is, that is tempting you at that time, you just take it and you say, God, please bring this desire, X, whatever it is, under your control. And every time it comes back, you submit it again to God. You cooperate with him and you begin to find, the more you do that, the more you find that God begins to strengthen you, to build into you self-control. The next characteristic is patient endurance or perseverance, as it's got it in my Bible. This is simply an attitude that says no matter what happens, good or bad, and usually it's the the bad stuff, no matter what happens in my life, I will not be moved. That's what perseverance is. I will be faithful. I love this thought. What sort of a Christian do you want to be? 
Do you want to be a meteor? Or do you want to be a star? Because you see, meteors flash across the sky. They look great. They're brilliant. They light up the sky for a while. But then they peter out really quickly. But a star, it quietly, silently shines in the dark, out there in space, forever and ever. I have seen too many Christian meteors who flash across the sky and they look great and everything is wonderful, but then they peter out just as quickly as they flashed onto the scene. What God is calling us as a church to be, and I'm talking about the church universal and us as a church, God is wanting faithful Christians who persevere no matter what, who turn up, who in the words of William Carey, that great Baptist missionary, he said, I can plod. He was a great man, William Carey. He goes to India. I think it was 12 years he waited for his first convert. He spent that time translating portions of the Bible into all different languages in India. Took him 11 years to get to that point. Sections of the Bible, New Testament, all in different translations. Just quietly went about his work and then in one night, 11 years of work was burnt to the ground. Can you imagine that? 11 years of work to get the scriptures into the hands of people in their local language. Burnt to the ground. Six months later, he had it all back to where it was prior to the fire. William Carey said, I can plod. We need more Christians who can plod and persevere no matter what. He talks about an awareness of God. We've, we met this word last week. He talks about godliness. He says, in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness. That is an attitude towards God. Let me reply, remind you of it. It means a focus on God that produces an attitude that says, I want to please God. I, I respect God, and so I want to live a life that pleases him. But the other interesting thing is that godliness refers to respect for people. And so if we are godly people, we not only respect God, we respect others. And it shows up in our attitude. And then it leads to this next one. It follows on so well. In your godliness, brotherly kindness or brotherly love. That is simply love because we have something in common. What do we have in common? Jesus produces brotherly love. Love for each other as Christians. And so that quite naturally flows into a life of love. And interestingly, the way it's written is when he talks about, my translation says Christian love, it actually literally is the love. It's agape, it's sacrificial love. What is the love that this leads to? It's a life of sacrificial love. A life that puts others first. A life that says your interests are more important than mine. A life that is a life of service. A life that is ready to serve. A life that Loves in such a way that you want the best possible good for the other person. Folks, it's going to take a lifetime. So don't be discouraged this morning if you're not there yet. But if you're growing in love, if you're more loving than you were last year, celebrate that. None of us are perfect. It will take a lifetime. But hear what I'm saying today. Cooperate with God. Hear the word again. Peter says, supply. The way that is written in the original language is make a decisive, effective choice. Begin doing this now. Don't just try. Make it happen. And we're not talking about legalism. If you, I've talked to people who, and particularly the new atheists these days, who don't believe in God but they like Christian morals. 
have gotten into the Stoics because the Stoics had a lot of good morals. And if you study the ancient Stoics, a lot of the morals they talk about are the kind of morals that we would agree with as Christians. But here's the difference. And this is the, the problem for the new atheist, for the Stoic, for the new atheist. They want to live good moral lives, but it ends in frustration. Do you know why it ends in frustration? Because they haven't been given everything they need to live that kind of life. We have. It's all been supplied for us. Everything we need to live the Christian life has been given to us. Now we just cooperate with God. It will not end in frustration when we cooperate with God, when we avail ourselves of what God has done for us. You see, the difference between the moral life and the Christian life is the Christian life ends in a life of love. And that includes love for everybody, including your enemies. Folks, there's no other life like it. That is what is qualitatively different about the Christian life. So let me, let me share with you just a personal illustration of how it works. So Tuesday morning, wake up, verse that I uh, am drawn to, I reflect on is at the end of Psalm 139. You might know that. and it, it, That verse, it says at the end, search me and try me and know my innermost thoughts. And the translation that I was looking at said, point out to me anything that is offensive to you or that, that needs to be changed. And so I reflected on that and I prayed and I said, okay, Lord, if there's anything in my life, I'm not aware of, and I'm being genuine, I'm not aware of any sin or where I'm in conflict with what you want me to do. But if there's anything that you want to point out of me that needs pointing out, go for it. Now, it had started the night before, actually, as I reflected on it. Karen had said to me, you're saying yes to too much. So I took that on board. Meditate on the verse, and I said at the beginning of Tuesday, Lord, anything you want to point out, da da da. Well, what an interesting day Tuesday was. <laughs> Two ladies came to visit me, wonderful, godly ladies. And they would come to talk to me about uh, something I want to do in our church, which is terrific. But they pray for me. And one of the ladies said, Pastor, we've been praying for you. And we feel that you might be doing too much. This is interesting. And then, then they said, in fact, we had a dream and your desk is just covered with paper. And I looked at my desk. <laughs> don't, now don't, I don't want you to worry. I'm not burning out. Nothing like that. It, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a discipline issue in terms of I have to be careful what I say yes to. That's all it was. So I'm thinking, and I appreciated that. I said, thank you. And then I got four or five texts from different people who were wanting to know where things were at with certain things that I committed to doing. Even one came through about eight o'clock that night. I said, at the end of the day, I said, okay, God, I've got the point. I would be foolish to ignore that. If I'm going to grow through that, I have to hear what God is saying to me through his word, through his spirit, through other people. And I would be foolish and disobedient to ignore that. Folks, that's how holiness works. So what do I do? I now bring that to God and I say, okay, Lord, Help me to change this. Help me to work in partnership with you. Folks, that's how holiness works. God draws things to our attention and we cooperate with God and work with him. So let's just talk very briefly about sanctification and the will of God because look at verse 8. Here's how Peter wraps it up. He says, If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. Work it the other way. He said, if, if you're doing this, you will not be barren. 
That's what the word useless means. You will not be barren, but you will be fruitful. You will flourish when you begin to put these things into practice. He goes on, because if you don't, if you lack these qualities, you're blind and short-sighted. The word short-sighted means to screw your eyes up. And when you screw your eyes up, you can't see clearly. And that's what Peter is saying. If you don't start to cooperate with God, it's like you're screwing your eyes up, you're not seeing clearly, and worse, you've forgotten what Jesus has done for you. See what it says at the end of verse 9? You've forgotten that he's actually cleansed you from your sin. He's set you free. If you are not growing in holiness, you've forgotten what Jesus has done for you. Now let me just show you how it works. Because people say, oh, well how do I know how to be a holy person? Thank you for asking that question. It begins with God's will. So, we all understand... Let's see if I got that right. We all understand that God has sovereign will. The Bible talks about that. Now, we don't know every detail of God's sovereign will, okay? We can't. We know some of it. We have the Bible. We know that part of God's sovereign will is for all people to be saved. We know that that won't happen. But God's sovereign will is for all people to be saved, that his son Jesus died for the sins of the world and rose again. We know that's all part of God's sovereign plan and we see a lot of that in Scripture. But we don't know everything about God's sovereign will. But there's another area that we often forget about. It's God's moral will. So when it comes to living the holy life, God has not left us in the dark. Folks, God's moral will is contained in this book called the Bible. You want to live a holy life? This is where you start. People talk about... This, this whole issue of the Bible is so restrictive. It uh, just wants to restrict me and I have no freedom. That is the greatest lie both outside the church and inside the church that you can hear. God's moral will is not restrictive. Think back to the Garden of Eden. What did God say? You have enormous freedom. In fact, the freedom is so great, says God, you can eat from any tree except for one. You are free. Here's the moral will, that one is off limits, but you have enormous freedom. And folks, it's the same today. So we have God's moral will here in the Bible. What we forget is this next area, is what we call the area of freedom. We have so much freedom to live as people. Freedom in Christ. As long as the decisions that we make, the choices that we embark on, do not conflict with God's moral will, Folks, you have enormous freedom. It's only when we step across certain boundaries. People say, oh, the word of God is so restrictive. This business about a holy life, it, res it restricts my sexuality. It restricts this. It restricts my lifestyle, whatever it might be. It's a lot of rubbish. It's a lie. Do you know that the moral will of God, which, uh, of course, we know is set out largely in the first five books of Moses... And people say, oh, those boring books and all the detail of the law. Do you know that the law of Moses is based simply on ten commandments? God distilled it down to ten commandments. Jesus distilled it down to two. And everything that's written about the ten commandments in the first five books is an extension or an application of those ten commandments. 200 years before the Code of Hammurabi came out, the Code of Hammurabi details every single thing a person does. It legislates every movement a person makes. 
Welcome to 21st century Australia, where we are legislating everything that people can and can't do. The Word of God is not like that. You have enormous freedom. You need to see holiness not as restrictive, but as freedom. I hope this is making sense. It makes sense to me. So how do I finish up? This is how I finish up. If my life for Jesus earns me the title of a God-botherer, so go your hardest. Because I thought about it. I haven't had to suffer to the point of death. That's what Hebrews says. My saviour suffered unjustly to the point of death. You see what I'm saying? I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to be thrown in jail. I don't want people to taunt me. But when I stop and look at what my saviour has done for me, I look at it and I think, God bother her. doesn't bother me. I don't want to bother you because I've said something stupid or insensitive. I don't I want to be like that. But if my life, just because I'm trying to, as best I can, turn up for Jesus, bothers you, I'm okay with that. I say, go your hardest. Because my saviour did a lot more. So, if someone's calling you a God-botherer at the moment, or a Bible basher, or a happy clappy, don't be obnoxious about it. Keep plodding on for Jesus. Keep turning up. Because as Paul said to the Thessalonian church, God's will is for you to be holy. Let's pray. Father, we want to be the right kind of God-botherers. We don't want to offend people unnecessarily. We don't want to be obnoxious in the things that we say. We want to speak truth. But Lord, we want our lives to count. We want, we want to be able to reflect Jesus. So I pray this morning that we'll be encouraged. Lord, for, for those of us, I think some of us need a radical shift in this whole idea of holiness. I think we need to see that holiness is freedom. We need to see that it's not restrictive. Lord, I, I think we, we really need some of us to see that we've got to cooperate with you. We've got to recognise we need to change. We need to grow. So, Lord, whatever it is you're saying to our hearts, give us the strength to make the right decisions today and to cooperate with you, to, to work in with all that you've given us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his life. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the church. May we be the best God-botherers we can be. In Jesus' name, amen.